Good morning. You'll be opening your Bibles, as always, to the book of Matthew, it seems. But this time a little farther ahead, we're going to be in Matthew 27 today. This sermon falls between two major holidays. First, National Atheist Day and Good Friday. Obviously, I'm being a little bit cheeky by calling April Fool's Day uh, National Atheist Day, but there's biblical warrant, isn't there? Um, Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. One of the main objections to the, uh, to the existence of God, I want to handle that. Why do people say there's no God? One of the main objections to the existence of God is the problem of evil as it's formerly called. It can be summed up kind of like this, that if God exists, then He's all-loving and all-powerful. Right? And if God is all-loving, then He'd want to eliminate all evil. And if He's all-powerful, then He's able to eliminate all evil. But evil exists. So, God doesn't exist. That's the reasoning. That's a syllogism. If this is and this is, then this follows, right? The argument is logical and therefore it's undeniable. If. There's an if there though. If the premises are true. But what if the starting point of their entire argument is off? What if man's comfort and ease is not the blazing center of the entire universe? What if there's something greater, something more important, a grander purpose behind our existence? We do not need to wonder why God created. He straight up tells us in His Word, doesn't He? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why did God choose to create it all? Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by Him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him. And why? For Him. And... He is before all things. That doesn't mean temporally. That means He is preeminent. He is more important than anything else. That God Himself is more important than anything else. Not our comfort, not our ease, but God's glory is more important. You don't just find that in one isolated text. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. We exist. He does not exist for us. We exist for Him. He created us for His glory. He was before we were, wasn't He? Romans eleven thirty six from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Everything God does, he does for his own glory. It's been asked several times. Who's the most God centered person in the universe? God is. Is God an idolater? No, he has no other gods before himself. 
For him to do anything for the purpose of anything great other than himself was for, for him to assert that something is more important than he is, and that would be idolatry. It'd be leading us to go after other things other than that which is absolute and total and perfect. Why does God graciously defer his anger from us? The Bible tells us that answer. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For the sake of my name, God says, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you. Is it for us? Yes. But it's for his name's sake first and for us secondarily in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake. It says it again. I didn't, I didn't repeat it. The verse repeats it. For my own sake, for my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Why does God predestine us to be sons that the glory of His grace might be praised? Ephesians 1, 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His grace, which He freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. Why did he make one vessel for lump and one for one vessel for uh, for wrath and one for mercy? He tells us that in Romans nine twenty two through twenty three. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if He did that? He, the argument is that'd be fine because He's God. And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. You see a theme there, don't you? We have to... The unregenerate man who loves himself more than he loves God, he can't understand a world where evil exists. Where things that he doesn't like exist. So the question that we have to ask in order to disarm this problem of evil is, since there is evil, why does God allow it? How is God more glorified by the temporary existence of evil than He would be in a world where evil did not exist? There's your question. And the best biblical answer to that difficult question is found in the second holiday in our holiday sandwich that we're in the middle of right now. We had a National Atheist Day yesterday. But what's coming up on Friday? We have Good Friday, don't we? What is Good Friday? Well, this Good Friday holiday was the day that truth incarnate was condemned as a sinner based on lies. Right? This Good Friday was the day that the Prince of Peace was brutally tortured out of man's war against God himself. Having raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11, the widow of Nain's son in Luke 7, and Jairus' daughter in Matthew 8, Jesus rightly calls himself the resurrection and the life. But on this Good Friday, the resurrection and the life himself was torturously put to death. On what day? What kind of Friday? Good Friday. Those who were there on the first Good Friday certainly didn't think they were in the middle of a Good Friday. Not at all. And that's where we're going to pick up in Matthew 27, 45. We have now Jesus on the cross on this Good Friday. And from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. The Getty's got it right. You know the song, This the Power of the Cross? Oh, to see the dawn 
of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten, then nailed to a cross of wood. Indeed, this was the darkest day. And this three hours of darkness was no ordinary darkness. This darkness was a supernatural, miraculous darkness. Well, how do we know that? You know, sometimes it gets dark in the middle of the day, doesn't it? With, nor- with ordinary scientific explanations. A severe storm can cause darkness. Uh, the sky grew dark in Pompeii in 79 AD when Mount v- Vesuvius erupted and ash went all into the sky. An eclipse can cause darkness temporarily right in the middle of the day, right? How do we know this is supernatural? Well, there's no volcanoes in Israel. And no volcano was mentioned. I think that'd be a rather big deal. We'd have that in history, wouldn't we? There wasn't a volcano causing it. This certainly wasn't an eclipse. An eclipse lasts only for a few seconds. How long was this darkness? It was for three solid hours. And there's no storm mentioned in the text at all. It was just dark. Just dark. The people knew something miraculous, something spiritual was happening. It was a frightful time. Also, the the crucifixion took place during Passover week, and Passover is always observed at the time of a full moon, and an eclipse can't take place at the time of a month when there's a full moon. So there's no way you can explain it with an eclipse. This was a special divine intervention to the normal workings of nature by which the sky grew grew dark in the middle of the day from the sixth hour, which was 12 o'clock, high noon, all the way to three in the afternoon. This supernatural darkness was both literal and symbolic. That is to say, it really did happen, but that God caused it to happen to physically represent things, that the, uh, the, the darkness that was going on in the spiritual realm. First, it represents the demonic activity that was happening. There was a, it was a wicked day, wasn't it? The word darkness is often used in the Bible to refer to demonic activity. Ephesians 6, 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And make no mistake, the crucifixion of Jesus, there's a sense in which these demonic powers of darkness are holding sway in those moments. There's a sense in which that's true. Luke makes it even more clear than any of the other gospel writers. Luke 22, 2-4. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. Satan entered him, and Judas acted because Satan had entered Judas. Right? Later in that same chapter, Luke 22, 52-53, Jesus has been arrested. He said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him, Have you come to me with swords and clubs as you would with a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and this power of darkness are yours. That The powers of darkness were given the ability to actually win temporarily. It's a dark dark day. And this is in the life of who? Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, God Himself. You think God the Father loves the Son? (laughs) 
This is the time when the serpent is going to be allowed, though, to deliver his painful blow to the seed of the woman, bruising his heel. This is all part of the plan of God, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, that the, the seed of the, of the serpent would bruise the seed of the woman's heel. We're not going to go on to what's happening also at the same time, but there's a real sense, there's pain happening to this promised deliverer. And it's ordained by God. The darkness of this moment is ordained by God, isn't it? It also symbolizes not only the demonic activity, but the wrath of God being poured out upon Jesus. Look at verse 46. About the ninth hour, after this three hours of total darkness... Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is being interpreted. That means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another way that the term darkness is used throughout Scripture is to demonstrate the wrath of God being poured out on someone. You see that in Matthew 8, 12, 22, 13, 22, 25, 30, that, being, that people are being cast out into outer darkness where there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. We see it elsewhere in 2 Peter 2.17 that these are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. That the people, these false teachers Peter's referring to, are carved out for the black darkness. What is that? Well, that's the darkness that Jesus has spoke of several times in the book of Matthew. The wrath of God itself being poured out on sinful humanity. Now let me be clear. Jesus did not die and then go to hell for three days as some people teach today. He tells one of the thieves hanging on the cross that this day you will be with me where? In paradise. How many of you know that hell is not paradise? Anybody here confused about that? But he did experience hell for his people in the full wrath of God that was poured out on him while he was on the cross. On the cross, he suffered the full wrath of God to the ex- same extent that sinners experience the wrath of God in hell. Yes, the, the scourging of the guards, the nails in Christ's hands and feet, the arduously slow death of suffocation that takes place when you're hanging on the cross. Just hours and hours of you fall down, you can't breathe, and you push yourself up with what strength you've got against the little block below you to get enough to where you can get a breath, and then your body weight has to sink down because you're not strong enough to hold yourself there. And over time, you actually get congestive heart failure. Your heart fills with fluid, with water, and then you die because of congestive heart failure. Over hours and hours, you're struggling to live, but your body's killing you, the weight of your body hanging down. Well, yeah, there's a sense. I mean, that's the wrath of God, sure. But the most intense suffering Christ experienced was spiritual in nature. The hopelessness of feeling forsaken by His Father. Left alone. The torment of experiencing God's wrath for the sins of His people. This is Calvin. Calvin's Institute, she says, after explaining what Christ endured in the sight of man, the creed appropriately adds the invisible and incomprehensible judgment which he endured before God to teach us that not only was the body of Christ given up at the price of redemption, but that that there was a greater and more excellent price, that he bore in his soul the tortures of a condemned and ruined man, smitten by God and afflicted. By his own father. 
Jesus feels forgotten by God. The undiluted wrath of God is overwhelming his soul. It's a heart-piercing, heaven-piercing, hell-piercing cry he has here that, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Further, Jesus is expressing the agony of unmitigated sin. All the sin of the elect and the hell that they deserve for eternity are laid upon Him. And Jesus is experiencing the agony of unassisted solitariness. He's alone. Guys, you've never felt as alone as Jesus felt while He was hanging on that cross, ever. In this hour of greatest need comes a pain unlike anything the Son has ever experienced. His Father's abandonment. When Jesus most needs encouragement, no voices cry from heaven. There is no, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. At the time when He's the weakest, the most beaten down, there's no voice. God doesn't speak to him then. No angel is sent like when he was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness and the angels came and ministered to him. There's no angel here at a time of greater need than just mere intense and terrible hunger. There's no well done, thou good and faithful servant resounding in his ear. The women who supported him, they're all silent. The disciples, they're cowardly and terrified. They've all left him, feeling disowned by all. Jesus endures the way of suffering alone, deserted, forsaken, and utter darkness. A supernatural darkness all around. There's not even the comfort of a sunny day. Every detail of this horrific abandonment declares the heinous character of our own sin. That's Joel Beakey. But there's one last thing this darkness symbolizes which we see manifest itself in this text. The spiritual blindness of those that are watching. They were blind to the Scripture, first of all. I want you to turn. Keep your finger here. We'll be coming back to Matthew 27. But I want you to turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. I'm going to read Matthew 27, 46 through 47 as you turn there. Listen to, the, to their response of Jesus' tormented cry. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began to say, This man's calling out for Elijah. Why do I say that these verses demonstrate spiritual blindness? Because they should have known the Scriptures. These words are not original to our Lord. Jesus is not just crying out in anguish. He is giving anyone who has spiritual eyes to see a clear indication of His identity and His mission. These words are the exact words of Psalm 22.1. In the Hebrew it says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. These guys should have heard that and no, they, they're not thinking scripturally. They don't know their scriptures. They're not re resonating with what Jesus is crying out that this is quoting Psalm 22.1 in the Hebrew. They don't hear that. Jesus is identifying himself as the fulfillment of this text. At least three other parts of this psalm are quoted in the story of his death. So you've got verses 1 and 2. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 22. Why are you so far from me? From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer, and by night and I find no rest. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is placing himself right there in this messianic psalm as this figure who's being forsaken by God, the wrath of God on him in this great darkness. Look at verse 7 in, in Psalm 22. 
All who see me mock me. They make, they make mouths at me and they wag their head. Do you see that in Psalm? You see it in Psalm 27? I mean, 22, 7? You see it, don't you? Those exact words, they wag their heads, are in Matthew 27, 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, thinking of him as a great sinner. They're like, oh, this is awful, these sinners. You know how when you see somebody getting what they deserve, and you're like, oh, there's an agreement you have with it? They're doing that with Jesus, just like in Psalm 22. To show that the psalm is being played out in the death of Jesus. That's the point. In verse 16 of the psalm we read, They have pierced my hands and my feet. We miss how amazing this verse is. Why did David write these words? There seems to be a clear allusion to crucifixion, but that makes this verse even more astounding because Psalm was written about 1000 B.C., this psalm was, and crucifixion as a form of capital punishment wasn't invented until about 400 B.C. by the Persians. 600 years after this is written, crucifixion's invented, and the Romans take over and they perfect it later than that. We're a thousand years from when this is written. The piercing of the hands and feet is a very new innovation of people that are hanging on the cross. You think, you think this Bible's not inspired? Hey, hey, National Atheist Day, guys. This problem of evil, you've got a lot of prophecy to deal with if you're going to hold to the problem of evil that I, we have answers for. You have no answers for the supernatural origins of the Scriptures, though. There are none. So they're looking on Jesus. He's crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everyone's walking around wagging their heads. And his hands and feet are pierced, just like Psalm twenty-two sixteen says that they will be. And then in verse 18 of Psalm 22, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew 27, 35, And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Jesus is this, the fulfillment of this messianic psalm. Jesus is letting them know. He's giving them a clue. Hey, this is happening right in front of you. They don't see it though because of the spiritual blindness. It lets us know that Jesus knew just exactly what was going on the entire time. And even though terrible things are happening, He knows God is in complete control, that this is God's plan. How could they miss something so obviously going on around them, especially when Jesus is quoting the introductory line to this psalm for them in the midst of this miraculous darkness? Well, it was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet when he spoke. This is John 12, uh, 38-41. Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I healed them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw the Christ and spoke of Christ. They were also blind to Christ's power and his willingness to die. So they think he's crying out for Elijah to come and save him, right? This man's calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. They think that he's wanting to escape from the cross is why he's crying out. They actually thought Jesus was crying out hoping for help. 
The man who had opened the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, who had caused the lame to walk, who had fed 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish, and then 4,000 men with seven loaves and a few false fish, this man, who even when they were arresting him, proved his miraculous powers. Remember Peter cuts off Malchus's ear and Jesus bends down and puts Malchus's ear back on and heals him right in front of him. Jesus didn't need to be saved by Elijah from the cross. Look at the miraculous power of this man. John 10, 17-18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one is taking it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from the Father. Jesus is submitting himself to this death, to this evil. In trust of the Father. He told them when he was being arrested, remember that right after he put Malchus's ear back on in Matthew 26, 53-54. Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? This, the, the Father's plan has this great evil that's going to happen in it and I trust the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. I could stop this, but I'm not going to. I'm going to trust God in the middle of this. Make no mistake, Jesus was not forced to the cross. He obeyed to the cross. And lastly, they were blind concerning who it was that needed to be saved. Immediately, one of them, they said, let us see if Elijah will come and save him. Indeed, this didn't look like a good Friday on the surface. But that's because of where we stopped in the story. Look now at Matthew 27, 50-54. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So now we've got the death of Christ. And look at verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion of those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said truly this was the Son of God. The cross was not an instrument of torture that Jesus needed to be saved from. The cross was an instrument of torture that Jesus was using to save the world with. There's a big difference in those two things. Jesus is not trying to be saved from the cross for his own benefit. He knows that this is God's mechanism to save the whole world from their sins. That God has a plan, and it's a good plan. And it entails temporary suffering to bring many sons to glory. Jesus knew that. Matthew 1, 21 through 23, when Jesus was born, She will bear you a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. This is the plan. And all this took place to fulfill that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and she shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The veil of the temple is torn in two. We have direct access to God through this evil that happened to Christ. In verse 51, the tombs were opened after his resurrection. Notice it says, I love this. Look at verse 53 again. Coming out of the tombs after...
after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. This rising from the dead, they rose with Jesus. They didn't rise while he's on the cross. But Jesus, but Matthew is so excited that he gets ahead of himself. You talk about spoiler alert. He's telling the story of Jesus' crucifixion and the resurrection that's going to come. He's not even gotten to the point that he's in the tomb yet, but he's already talking about, hey, he didn't stay there. I love the song we sang earlier. One of my favorite lines in any hymn of any song in the whole world is, Hast thou not seen how thy desires e'er have been granted in what he ordaineth? The worst things that ever happen are the best things. God's doing things through the bad things. Jesus knew that. He had faith in the Father's plan. He knew that evil, although it hurts in the moment, God's working something out through that and His plan's better than ours. And notice this, the Roman centurion confessed Christ as Lord. Which kind of centurion? The Roman centurion. He confessed Jesus as what? As the Son of God, right? Do you remember? So this Roman centurion who is under Caesar crucifying Jesus for saying that he's the Son of God because the Son of God is the name of Caesar. That's, that's a, a name that's only given to Caesar. It's reserved for Caesar. Makes him equal with God. The Roman centurion who is crucifying Jesus for saying he's the Son of God sees all this and he says, this dude was right. Wait, they just killed Jesus for saying he was that and the Roman centurion, knowing he can get killed for this, confesses that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. You know what that's called? It's called getting saved. We see one of his people coming to faith in the middle of the resurrection, I mean the crucifixion itself. Prior to coming forth from the grave, he sees this. And he knows. Turn, you still have are you still in Psalm 22? 22, listen to 27 through 31 because there's one more allusion to Matthew 27 that we see here. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. The engrafting of the Gentiles is at the end of Psalm 22. And we see it taking place after the, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus gives up the ghost and we immediately see a centurion say, Surely you are the Son of God. The ends of the earth will turn and worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before Him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive, posterity will serve Him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare His righteousness to a people who will be born that He has performed it. Why are we talking about Jesus still today? Because He died on the cross for our sins and rose to prove the point. Conquered death. It really was a good Friday. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He took the curse for us. Why do we call it Good Friday? Well, man, it doesn't seem like a Good Friday. Man, I love Jesus. We're saved because of that day. 
First Peter 2, 21-24 For you have been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in His steps. He who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. Why do bad things happen to good people? R.C. Sproul said, well, it only happened once. And he volunteered. He sure did. But why do bad things happen to us sinful people? If God had a plan for the suffering and death of the only perfect, sinless, holy person who ever lived on this planet, and He allowed Him to suffer, and He had a plan for that, and it was still for good, do you not think that maybe us as people who are still being conformed to the image of Christ still have remaining sin, that our suffering isn't nearly as unjust as we think it is? That maybe God has a plan for it? That maybe He's purifying us of still remaining evil and is still going to work it out for our good? That God not only is, if He's all good, wants to do away with sin, if He's all powerful, He can, but maybe He's all wise and He knows the best way to go about that to maximize His glory and that there's no discrepancy here at all? Maybe? Of course. Of course. He made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. But one last thing. And I like this one. If we love Jesus more than anything, even if we don't, we know that's the right answer. Right? Who's, who's the best person in the whole world? Jesus. You know. You get the Sunday school answer, right? Uh, who, do you love more than, who's, who do you love more than anything? Well, the best Sunday school answer is Jesus. We know we should say that, even if we don't really believe it. As Christians or quasi-Christians, we know that's the right answer. So if we really love Him more than anything, more than we love ourselves, shouldn't this be at least bitter, sweet Friday? Because, I mean, it's good for us. We're redeemed from our sins, and we get saved from the wrath of God because Jesus bore it on our behalf. But... Jesus kind of got the raw end of the deal here, didn't he? I mean, he's, he never did anything wrong. We did. He suffered for us. We get a free pass, but he went through all that. Bittersweet Friday, right? No. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I'm gonna re- I, actually, I'm going to play here, and you're just going to have to endure with me because we're going to chase this thread through different scriptures because I get excited about this stuff. And if you don't, then just bear with me. You're going to have to endure it. <laughs> uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Although Jesus existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being found in likeness of men and being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death, right? He obeyed to the cross. He wasn't forced to the cross. He obeyed to the cross. He became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. In Philippians 2.9. Therefore, because of this, God has highly exalted him. 
huper upsio, super exalted. He, that he lifted him to the loftiest of heights. Because he obeyed to the point of death, even death on the cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Curios Christos, not Curios Caesar, but Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the God-man to the glory of God the Father. That Jesus gets more glory because of this than he would have had if he hadn't came to earth and became a man. There's more glory for Christ. That the suffering produced something for him. Greater glory for the Son. You see it again in Acts 2, 22-36. Acts 2, 22-36. We're going to read all this. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Whose plan was it? God's plan. This dark hour where the demonic powers temporarily held sway, he was delivered over when Satan entered into Judas by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Nothing's out of control. All this evil that happened to Jesus was planned. Predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men. They're still guilty. They didn't do it for good purposes. And you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he's at my right hand. I will not be quickly shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Jesus would die, but he wouldn't stay dead. He'd rise bodily from the grave. Right? That's not talking about David here. It's talking about Jesus. You've made known the way of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I confidently say, this is Peter speaking about those verses that he quoted from the Old Testament, regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay, that Jesus, this Jesus God raised up, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted, exalted to the right hand of God, having received from God the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth that which we, you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended to heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit you here at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. The plan was for Jesus to put all the nations under his feet and the only path to purchasing the whole world and making that a reality where he is both Lord and Christ, not just Christ of the Jews, but Lord, this, the curios. Christos, the Son of God, getting that title from all the nations was through the path of the cross. And He's reigning right now at the right hand of the throne of God and He's putting His enemies under His feet today through the proclamation of the gospel. He's bringing the nations under subjection to Him today. Couldn't have done it without the crucifixion and the resurrection.
As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the, of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. This is 1 Peter 1, 10-11. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Notice the link. Sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Hebrews 2, 9-10. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. See the link again? It's all through the Scriptures. Because of the suffering of death, he gets crowned with glory and honor. There was a purpose for the temporary evil. And it was greater glory. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things. Remember the glory of God being the central point, what we started with? It was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. That we also will suffer. But it's part of God's plan to get us to glory. And we don't have to say, well, if God was good, He would do away with evil. And if He's all-powerful, He could. Now, once again, guys, there is evil, but He has a purpose for the evil in your life. The evil that you're experiencing, that you're going through, don't use that as a, He has a purpose for me doing evil. Okay, I'm going to go do more evil. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the, wit, the bad things that happen to you, the evil that you see all around you, the shooting that we saw this past week in Nashville, Tennessee, where three little kids were killed, three nine-year-olds, and uh, three teachers were killed by uh, a mentally insane person. God has a purpose for that. Still, what is it? Yes, I don't know. But He does. Nothing's out of His control. And He's good. He thinks beyond how we think. He knows what He's doing. I know that. Luke 24, 25-26 And He said to them, Oh, foolish man, this is Jesus after He raised... And slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? I like to kick the horse because I like to show you. I'm not making this up. You start looking for this, you find it all the time. Suffering, glory, they're linked. Every time. God allowed Christ to suffer because through suffering He receives the ultimate glory. I'm only going to do three more scriptures. And one little analogy, and we're going to be done. But turn, turn to Revelation 5, 8 through 12. <clears throat> when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the Lamb each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seal. Now you have a causal clause. Why is he worthy? What's it say? Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain. What made him worthy? He was slain. He was slain. He, he, he obeyed to the cross and it made him worthy to take the seal. And he purchased for God with your blood men of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests for, to our God. And they will reign on the earth. That God had a purpose in this. I 
I like to do this analogy. I hope that my, when I'm dead and gone, my kids are saying this analogy, and I hope when I'm dead and gone, some of you all are too. So I'm at least hoping some of you outlive me. But think of, think of this picture. You've got a picture of a, a knight, like K-N-I-G-H-T. And he's leaned up against a sword. He's got armor on, shiny armor, sparkling clean, feathered hair blowing in the wind, big smile, perfect white teeth. He's cheesing, leaned against that sword, helmet under his arm. How many of you think, well, that guy's probably a spoiled brat? He'd probably never been in a battle in his entire life. Right? I mean, what's glorious about that picture, really? I mean, he might be pretty, but nothing really glorious about him, is there? Take another picture. You've got a big backdrop in this picture. You've got woods, and, and there, there's a big dragon in the forefront. Huge dragon, and woods are behind him, and there's, there's a trail through the woods that you can see because he's just walked through the forest, and he's so powerful, the tail's swinging behind him, it's knocking trees over. Through the clearing in the woods behind him, you see huts that are on fire because he's, he's set them on fire with his breath. He's breathed them, and there's peasants laying there that have been slain by this terrible, awful dragon. And this dragon's right, this impending dragon, this for, fierce dragon right in the forefront. That's not all that's in the picture. Also in the picture, you have a knight. And he's standing and the sword is drawn and the sword is thrust into the heart of that dragon. It hadn't fallen over yet, but it's fallen. It's dead. It's clear from the picture. It's not a movie. It's a picture. But the, this dragon that caused all this carnage has been slayed. The sword is in his heart. Which of those two knights is more glorious? The cheesing one with the feathered hair or the one that slayed the dragon? Which one? If God created, and we know He did, everything for His glory and for the glory of His Son, that in all things He might have preeminence, that He is before all things, a world in which evil exists as a temporary reality that He will overcome by His greater power than the power of the dragon makes Him more glorious. And here's the good news. It doesn't end there because it's not just a painting. The end of the story, the huts are built back and they're better than they were before. The peasants are raised again. The trees are better. The whole thing's better because he fixed it all better than it was before the dragon wreaked his havoc. That's why there's evil. Because that's exactly what Jesus is doing. It's for his glory. And he's working out a plan where the world's even going to be better than it was before. He's going to be glorified and we're going to be glorified in Him. And there will come a day. Listen to Revelation 22.5 when there's no more darkness. There will no longer be any night. That darkness that was on the... Jesus hanging on the cross and this great darkness for that space of that three hours and a darkness that we've seen again and again throughout these demonic forces and the evil and the wickedness that's been in the world. There will be a day when there will no longer be any night and there will not have need for a light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illuminate them and they will reign forever and ever. He will put all the evil under His feet. It, God exists outside of time, guys. People that throw out the problem of evil, there are little finite creatures who will live for a little bitty span and they'll be dead and gone. God's not like that. The end and the beginning, they're the same to Him. He's existing outside. The end result, He sees it just as plainly as He sees the, what we're in the middle of right now or anything that's came before. There is no problem of evil. There is a God who is so mighty and so awesome 
that He can use sin sinlessly. That He can use evil in the world to accomplish His purposes without Himself ever even being guilty of any evil. That's the God that we serve and that we worship. So if God exists, then He is loving, all-loving and all-powerful. If God is all-loving, then He'd want to eliminate all evil. If God is all-powerful, then He'd be able to eliminate all evil. So what follows? So we can rest assured that He will eliminate it once His purposes for its temporary existence are fulfilled. Go this week. Go this week and be happy in your Good Friday. Remember that Good Friday didn't seem good when that Good Friday was there. We look back on it and hast thou not see how thy desires there have been granted in what He ordained. That if that was true in that Good Friday and God worked the greatest good out of that greatest evil, that whatever you're going through, how small is it that God will work good for it to you as well if your faith is in Christ Jesus. And when people bring up this so-called problem of evil, have the gospel to preach to them. Show them that there's no problem with evil at all. As a matter of fact, the greatest injustice that ever took place is your only hope of being forgiven for your real evil. You've got a pro- you do have a problem of evil, sir. The problem of evil is the evil you've committed against the holy God. And Jesus, by suffering in your stead, by enduring through evil with faith in the Father, has solved your sin problem. Go with that message. Unashamedly. The philosopher, the scientist, nobody has any evidence that overturns the Christian faith. As a matter of fact, when you think more deeply, everything more deeply establishes it. Christians, know what you believe, know why you believe it, and rejoice in it every day. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to believe, to have the joy of faith as we go through our lives. Uh, God, that we would be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks reason for the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. God, uh, help us to be uh, not cowardly and not ashamed of the hope that we have. To boldly proclaim Christ Jesus as our slain Savior who overcame death and to call other people to submit to Him before it's too late. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.